Hey, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Adrian Keith Garden, and that's Carl John Fenter sitting over there. And if you feel strongly about certain things, we may have just found a new home for you. This is the I Feel Strongly About That podcast. Obviously, nothing is going to be the same again. Yeah, it seems like we're living in very strange times. And I know that when you say that, it's sort of cliche because everyone seems to say that these days. When you ask someone how they're doing, they're like, yeah, I'm pretty weird. Like things, things are a little bit strange at the moment. And you know, we're only halfway into 2020. If it carries on at this rate, what else can we still expect in the second half? Well, you know, it's actually, actually quite interesting. I mean, um, you know, they... Uh, have memes on on Facebook and Twitter and all those places, and it's quite funny. I saw the other day they have someone summarized what the year has been so far, and um, was it January? I think January was the Australian bushfires, uh, yeah. which was terrible. I mean, that's horrible. That's the one thing which like and, and the killing of the the Iranian general. But that was I think February, no, so, no, end of January. Yeah, so so but I mean that's in World War Three sort of. Yes. That's when like the World War Three kind of uh, joke started popping up so um yeah so january was the, the australian wildfires and that's like i say the one thing for me which um i don't like to joke about like uh animals and stuff dying so <laughs> i don't find myself on the left or the right or anything of that like unequivocally i think that is unequivocally bad uh when you want to tell me about you know political things or social movements and stuff like that i might have an opinion which may go either way but when it comes to animals like that's just terrible so isn't that weird though hey you look at the bushfires we were all united yeah. in our dis- disgust yeah. in it you know everything else that has happened since then has been polarizing it's, it's been polarizing yeah well, but but when it comes to animals somehow we're all on the same side you know it's it's funny but exactly it's it's almost like when something happens by act of god you know force mayor um, when something happens which we're almost out of out of our own human control we unite together as as a as a human race, in quite a beautiful way, actually. I mean, um, <laughs> there was a lot of internet models, um, and these aren't, you know, like adult models. They're just like um, normal models who don't usually do these risque kind of things. Selling nudes in January, I remember, um, to raise money <laughs> for the um, Australian wildfires. <laughs> it's just funny how we come together as as humans when, like you said, something which is a almost like a cause greater than us when it's not just about us as humans when when you're thinking about the the animals who need our help um which is actually quite funny um because it seems like we do a lot of bad shit to the environment although i must say i'm sure that with the australian fires there were people i'm sure they were people who said that australia deserved it oh there Uh, was actually they they, they would they would i would imagine people from papua new guinea and you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, Australia's got enemies. Yeah. Uh, look, look, there was. Um, look, and again, um, I try and keep our discussion on you as intellectual as possible. And <laughs> well, <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Thank you for ruining that. Um, I try to keep it as, as, you know, just as honest as possible. And um, unfortunately, um, you know, we will maybe touch on it in another episode when we, when we tackle the, the issue of social media, online bullying and, and racism and all those, those topics. But... Um, I'm just telling you what I myself saw when the Australia fires were on the go. Um, 
E News and um, Eyewitness News and all the local South African news networks were reporting on it. And there were a couple of people saying, good, I'm glad. Oh, I remember It's that, all man. the people that have left our country. Yes, um, you know, yeah. people that have deserted our country. They deserve it. Now their country's burning. And I was yeah. just thinking, like, what world are we living in? But that was really from left field. I, I don't think that it was, it was a polarizing. No. Issue. Those were very isolated. For sure. But that's, that's exactly my point. My point is, <laughs> I don't think that there is ever any world event that happens that is single-handedly one-sided like there's always something that polarizes even if it is the small minority there were a couple of people that were saying you know i'm glad that australia is burning because it's all the the traitors of south africa that left there i mean like that's mad but also keep in mind the beginning stages of the coronavirus united the whole world yes the beginning stages where all the information we got was from who and cnn everybody took it as gospel um you know, the death rate, the infection rate, um, how contagious it was. It was spreading throughout the world. Um, it, it was, in those first couple of weeks, it did feel as though, as a world, we are united. Since then, it's unraveled. Yeah. Um, and it's become a polarizing issue. You know, with oh, very lo much lockdown so. or no lockdown, conspiracy or no conspiracy, um, you know, government overreach. Vaccine or, or, or no yeah, vaccine. So it, so it has become one of those things that, and I think maybe that is our natural state. That, you know, given enough time, we would find a way to polarize every issue. You know, and, and, and maybe you are right on that. Um, you know, growing up myself in the, let's say, the, the I'm the millennial age. So, like, growing up in the, in the early 2000s, um, it seemed that there was always polarizing factions relating to politics and religion and all, all the major topics around the world. But what I think for myself personally, my opinion... What I think changed everything was the advent and the birth of social media, because now we are so much more clued up as to what everyone's polarizing opinions are. And also you hear about the fringes. Yes. Whereas in the past, the fringes would actually just stay in their basements. So I don't think, I don't think that the world has always been united and now all of a sudden, because you know, that is one thing. Um, let me just, again, please just let me preface this by saying everything we're saying over here is, is just as a opinion of discussion. Um, it's, it's not necessarily indicative of my worldviews or your worldviews. I mean, that's the whole reason why we have this podcast is to facilitate this kind of discussion. Um, that being said, you know, I, I've, I found a lot of people online and a lot of um, peers of mine have said, you know, ever since Donald Trump came into office, um, it's polarized the world. It's almost gone to the extent of you get two kinds of people. You get the pro-Trump and you get the anti-Trump. And there's like almost no in-between. Um, that is sort of the rhetoric that we are given. And it seems, if you look at it without digging a bit deeper than face value, it does seem that that is the case, that the world became more polarized in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. That being said, like I was saying, I think the world's always been polarized with a lot of things. You know, back in the days of, of Nixon with um, Watergate and... Uh, JFK and uh, the Vietnam War and uh, Lyndon Johnson coming after JFK. You know, there's there's always been polarizing events in the world. I think right now we are just very much privy to how these events unfold because we have news media outlets reporting on it 24-7. Like you said, we have social media. We can see these um, fringe commentary from from people that are, are on the outskirts of, of the left and right so it just seems to me that it's not that we aren't being uh, polarized more it's just that we are being exposed to people's polarizing opinions more 
um, which is it comes as part of for me the it's the downfall and the plus side of, of being in the information age let me ask you a question though if you look at socially how we have changed and transformed over the last 20 years you will know about that being 30 what if you look at an issue like gay marriage it was the polarizing issue 10 15 years ago yeah in the 90s definitely the 90s, um, yeah. and both sides put up a very strong and vehement argument mm. and they argued it to the nth degree militantly so and the world seems to have settled on a consensus so what my question is is that that stage of polarization necessary in order for us to achieve the consensus well it's a really good question and i think i'm gonna maybe not sound as eloquent as my, what my mind is is thinking now with its thoughts but it's almost like progression comes through struggle sometimes and um, development and the world gets better through through struggle and strife and um, I think it was a different kind of struggle that we you know World War two and wars and all these like you know f actual physical conflict with guns and everything I think it was different for the gay rights movement in my opinion again I'm not an expert I'm just speaking from someone who's lived through um, you know the 90s the early 2000s and now the you know the middle or the what do, you, what do you even call them now? The tens? The tens? The teens? Yeah. I don't know. It's so weird. Like, uh, anyways, um, like you said, it, it was one of the hot button issues. And I think a lot of gay rights activists fought vehemently for their rights. A lot of anti-gay gay, um, rights activists, if you want to call them that, fought against it. And it seems like if you look at us today in 2020, that is sort of no longer really, for me, my opinion, I don't really see it as like a contentious issue i think most people generally accept that gay marriage is perfectly fine uh, you know no one no one really um you don't really hear about violent assaults on on people of of different sexualities look there are fringe cases here and there but it's we're more hearing about now like you know obviously the 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 hot button issue at the moment is you know racism and political beliefs and uh, I mean, terrorism it was even, that was a big thing in, in George Bush's reign, uh, reign <laughs> as if he's a king, <laughs> George Bush's presidency. I mean, that was the worldwide issue at that stage was, was terrorism. I mean, when last did you hear about well, that, that, ISIS I, I, or Al-Qaeda? I want to ask you about that because, I, you know, you consider the, the hot button issue, as you call it, uh, for the last 20 years has been this clash of civilizations between the West and let's call it the Middle East or Islam. Yes. Um, and the war on terror and 9-11 and um, the invasion of Iraq and the tension with Iran and the proxy war between Iran oh, and, and Saudi Sy Arabia and Syria. in Syria and in Yemen. Yes. And it, it, it was at the forefront, at the coalface of world tension. That seems to have subsided. Yes. But I think we haven't seen... We haven't seen its conclusion You're yet. Saying we haven't seen the because last you know, of it. Yeah. Because you know... That was really whether I mean it's it's cliche to say that, but it was it was a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but it was mostly the West's involvement in that that caused the tension was because of Israel and the biggie oil. Yeah. Now suddenly oil dropped to below below zero yeah. a couple of weeks back, um, and every country in the world sits on huge stockpiles of cheap oil. There is suddenly suddenly oil is no longer a strategic. 
um, a Asset, commodity. Yeah. So n- now, I wouldn't be surprised if we haven't seen yet how that will conclude. And yes. That will conclude, and it will just fizzle. They will, n- they will no longer. I mean, the, 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 what is America's interests now in the Middle East with Trump at the, at the head? What is their interest? Their interest is mainly protecting Israel. Yeah. But it's no longer to get oil. America now, as it stands, is the biggest producer of oil anyway. Well, America is very much domestically focused at the moment, I think. They are so internally focused that their world sort of outreach, if you want to call it like, they're the world police. So so this this issue that we have seen around oil, we have to call it by its name. It was all about oil. If it was all about oil, take Israel and Iran and Saudi Arabia out of the equation. The oil oil wars. Oil wars, yes. Um, I I think that era might have actually come to an end. And I think it has come to an end because of a confluence of many, many um, uh, events. So The biggest one was Trump's ascendancy to the presidency. Yes. That's the biggest one because he became much more internally focused. He was less inclined to go to war. Yes. Um, less inclined to keep the troops in Afghanistan and in Syria and in even the clandestine forces in Yemen and Libya and wherever else. You must, you must consider that a lot of people will disagree with you on that, that, that they think or that they say that their opinion is that Trump is wanting to make a war with all these other nations. There are a lot of people that are saying that. So, that, again, that's polarizing. Well, yeah, I I, I I would want to hear that argument. So, I mean, I we, we can get someone on the podcast maybe I, to talk about that. Who I, has I, that. I, feel, I feel he has had ample opportunity to escalate the tensions to a war situation. Yeah, I think that would be a very good topic. Especially to in Syria, and he hasn't. He yes. has taken his foot off the pedal, and he has withdrawn more than he has engaged. So I think Trump, that's the, the first element is that Trump's ascendancy has certainly pulled America out of the Middle East, Yes. Um, even diplomatically. And also the influence diplomatically has, has waned. Absolutely. And the second thing is that they've become the biggest oil producer and therefore no longer so dependent on this very close ties Saudi with Saudi Arabia. Yes. So I think we might be seeing the end or the fizzling toward an end in the oil wars. So I think from my... Of my very uh, green behind the ears worldview, <laughs> being only thirty-one, um, I s- tend to think that this is a war, oil war that will lay dormant for a while until we deal with the coronavirus pandemic war, if you want to call it that. I, I'm using the word war just as like a as a, a euphemism for polarizing opinions, because there's a lot of polarizing opinions now on lockdown, anti-lockdown protest anti-protest all these things so i think right now i'm just going to state the facts as it is we are facing a um a social political war with the black lives matter and the race issues so i think that's a war at the moment that's again i'm, I'm using the word war i don't want, i don't want to talk about violent conflict i'm talking about you know people actively disagreeing with one another and going to the streets and you know there's 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 a lot of unrest let me put it that way so i think right now the world's focus is and clearly you can see by media um, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, all the media outlets, they're talking about the protests for Black Lives Matter. We're talking about coronavirus. Um, we are talking still about the WHO uh, vaccine. So I think that is very much at the forefront. I don't think that the, it's as simple as saying we have this, now, we have this conflict, so, so-called conflict with coronavirus and social justice, and that's going to settle things in the Middle East. I think that war is still going to rage for many more years. I think right now we're just not focusing on it. But from my, from my opinion, the minute all of this gets settled, and it will, everything comes to its natural conclusion. I mean, we were all worried about Y2K 
1999 and 98. That was the biggest uh, world worry. You know, that got settled. We were all worried about gay rights. That got settled. They got, you know, people are allowed to get uh, married now in South Africa. Specifically, I'm not going to talk about other laws because I don't really know them. But, you know, there's civil partnerships now in South Africa. They are, you can have a gay marriage. You can, uh, you know, it's, it's, those sort of issues were eventually settled in with society where we progressed to an understanding where maybe we weren't all in agreement, but we were able to find a middle ground where we were it able... It was a consensus. Yes, we were able to cater for people with their various needs. And I feel we will eventually be able to cater for people with their various needs relating to the pandemic and the lockdown. And call me a fool for saying this, but I believe we will eventually come to peace with you know, racism and, and treat, treating our, our fellow human better and, and finding a solution where we can all live harmoniously. Maybe that's a pipe dream. But I think once that sort of gets sorted out, we will find something else to fight about. And then the Middle East conflict will come up again. Because that zone, I mean, you know more than me, historically that zone is so rife in conflict with, you know, Israel, Palestine, um, the wars in the Middle East over there. I mean, that's been going on since what, like the early 90s? Um, since I was a young kid. I mean, that's been something which no world leader so far has been able to get involved and try, try uh, you know, resolve that and try to get the parties to understand. So my, I guess what I'm saying is my chief opinion on this all is as humans, we are polarizing. We will always find something to fight about. I don't think that we should think, oh, you know, if we sort out Black Lives Matter, if we sort out the coronavirus and we're going to have peace in the world. I think you are foolish if you think that, that is the way the world's going to operate. We will never have peace. The way the world does operate, and I don't agree with everything that he says, but Tucker Carlson made a good point the other day. He said that this, this social warfare that's carrying on in the streets of America now, he says it's symptomatic of what happens throughout the world in the protests in Hong Kong, in France, in South Africa, in America, in Britain, um, in Sweden. He said that it's a war between those who feel they don't have a stake in the system and those who feel they do have a stake in the system. So the one side wants to ultimately destroy the system. The other side wants to preserve the system. And that is the war that happens whether you want to draw a line between races or between classes or between ages or between Religion. um, religions. It will always be, as he terms it, between those that have a stake in the preservation of the system as it is and those that don't have a stake in that system and therefore has got, they, they're motivated to destroy the system. Yes. Because out of that destruction, the anarchy that will th- develop, they will then get a stake out of it. And that, that to me, if I had to apply that thinking to all the civil conflicts, I'm not talking about between nations, but the civil conflicts throughout the world, it rings, at the moment. It rings true, yes. The civil conflicts at the moment. So just to, what are, you, what are we talking about then? Are we saying but, but, what, the what Black Lives saying, Matter movement? What he was saying is the Black Lives Matter movement. He says there is, it's, it's, um, the Black Lives Matter movement is on the fault line between the struggle between those who want to preserve the system yes. and those who want to destroy the system. And when I mean, say destroy, I don't mean they want to kill. When I say preserve, I don't mean they want to keep everything as it is. Yes. But having a vested interest in the system makes you want to preserve everything about that system. And not having a vested interest in that system makes you more inclined to want to destroy that system. 
and the fault lines get drawn um, around these issues of racism, the Black Lives Matter thing, what happens in Hong Kong, uh, what is happening in the civil strife throughout the world, yes. what's happening in South Africa. South yes. Africa is it's very much a, a struggle between those, and you can call it the haves and the have not. have nots. But as Tucker Carlson says, it's those who have a stake in yes. the system. Like the system works for them, and they have a stake in that. They, they, are, they are either profiting from or being protected by the system. Mm. And then there's another group who opposes them, who feels they don't have a stake in the system, mm. and therefore they are, they are inclined to destroy it. Well, I mean, if you want to turn it more domestic to South Africa, um, and I think we've always been a nation polarized by politics, just by our very history of South Africa. I mean, you're talking about the Boer Wars, uh, you're talking about, you know, the era of apartheid, you're talking about now where we're going through a, a similar civil strife at the moment where people are talking about the land expropriation and, and all those kind of issues. I think we have been a nation, unfortunately, built from struggle. Um, you know, we had to fight going back historically now, and, and again, my, my history, I hope it doesn't let me down, but, you know, um, becoming a republic and freeing ourselves from the, the control from the the English uh, monarchy and the, their colonialism. And, and now that, that was an issue then, and that almost got sorted out. We became our own independent republic. Then the next issue was obviously the way that the republic treated its members, which were, they were members, um, you know, the, the people of, persons of color, if you'd like to refer to as, I think that's the politi political, politically correct term. Um, you know, it's, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where to stand nowadays with the right terms, but obviously, um, you know, apartheid, which was which was horrendous in, in the way that it's it secluded a lot of people from um, society, and then that got dealt with, and that got sorted out in 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 the early nineties and then nineteen ninety four when we became a democracy, and I, even through democracy now we have a lot of polarizing opinions in South Africa where um, you know BEE is, is is something that's constantly brought up by people which which. A lot of people are saying, well, it's great. We need to uplift those who are previously disadvantaged and promote um, quota and promote um, representation is the word, representation in the workplace. And then you have a lot of people saying, well, it's a failing system. It's not working. There's, you know, we need to give equal opportunity to equal people in this country. And so it's, for me, again, my point is we're always going to find something to be polarized about. And um, like you said, the people that have a stake in it, are the ones that want to keep it the same. So let me make a direct example. In Kosizani Dlamini Zuma, she has a direct stake in us not allowing cigarettes to come back to society in South Africa under our current lockdown. Why? Because there's multiple and plenty, there's plenty evidence against her to say that she's involved in the illegal black market sales of cigarettes. Well, I, I, okay. Look, I, it's, I, I, it's, need, I need to say that that is, that is um, allegations. Allegations, sure, and it's, and and it's not um, tested in court. But I, I think the, the, there's inference drawn from her close relationship with known cigarette smugglers. Sure. Um, so that definitely does, um, but I mean, I, sure, I wouldn't but, call but, it evidence. No, sure, I wouldn't call it evidence either, sure. But where, for, for me, again, where there's smoke, there's fire. And for me... The, where the allegations are so strong and so steadfast in, in how they are completely always coming out, you know, it's it's the fact that this hasn't been investigated to a public degree of, we haven't been given a report, put it this way, by any governmental department, by the National Prosecuting Authority, by any judicial or, or executive authority from our branches of government have not come out and said, without a shadow of a doubt, 
unquestionably, she is not involved in this. It's almost just swept under the rug. And that for me is the checks and balances where there is allegations like that, it should be dealt with. Even if there are, if there is absolutely no ties to her with the illegal underground cigarettes, then there should be an unequivocal statement from our, our ruling party. Um, again, though, like you said, that's their stake. They have a stake in keeping the status quo. So I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I cannot call any legal facts now and say that this is, this is truth, that she is involved or she isn't. Right now, we don't know. And the thing is, we have systems in place which can provide us clarity. It's just we're not being provided with that clarity. So again, this was how it happened with the whole Russia, the election, uh, Russia collusion with Donald Trump having um, allegedly rigged the election. Then they, they had the hearing, they had the House, they had the Senate, they had the impeachment hearing. It was dealt with, unequivocally, it was dealt with by their judicial system. Whether or not you want to say, yes, it was skewed in Donald Trump's favor because of the Senate, they are majority of the Senate is, is Republican, so of course they were voted for him. The fact of the matter remains that there was a hearing, it became public, it was known to everyone, everyone was able to dissect and look at the facts. Right now, we don't have that system over here where we can dissect and look at the facts. And maybe if there is a hearing for Nkosi Zani Dlamini Zuma, she might be declared innocent of all the charges because of, I'm just saying, it could be that there's political influence that, that sways that. That's regardless of, of, of the point I'm trying to make. There should be at least be a hearing to at least allow the public to know the facts because we don't live in a socialist state. We don't live in a... In a well, you mentioned that now. Autocratic and I, and I must say that if you, if you take what Tucker Carlson says about the, the, the two polar opposites in society, you have to ask them that how do you get those, the have-nots, those that feel that they have an incentive to destroy society or the system, <coughs> how do you get them to feel like they have a stake in that system? And that is when... Um, you create a marketplace for populists and socialists to come to the fore and say, I will give that to you. Because everyone's and equal then you under suddenly, socialism. you suddenly um, empower them in a way that feels that they will then, in this new alternative system, they will have a stake in that system. Um, and that is what has given rise to this very strong growing class of, of intellectual socialists <coughs> in the world where suddenly a socialist is no longer a, a curse word. It is, you know, we have, we've quickly forgotten socialism's record over the last hundred years. Um, and oh, it is something that is, that is seriously being considered you know, in, 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 the, in the freest nation, in the most capitalist nation in the world. Yeah. But again, there you will look at the capitalist class of America as being the ones that have a stake in society. Well, they obviously want to keep it the status quo. And the only people that socialism appeals to are those that don't have a stake in society. So the secret would be, I mean, that's a question, but how do you get those that don't have a stake in society to have a stake in society without resorting to socialism, the very failed policies of socialism? Well, that's something which I've also um, tackled and, and wrestled with, you know, having, I'm doing my master's at the moment in labor law, and we, a big question was, how do we keep our social grants system working in our country, especially now in light of people losing their jobs with COVID-19. I mean, I, I know many, many friends, personal friends of mine that have lost jobs through retrenchments through this uh, pandemic because of industry struggling. 
Um, but how do we support those people? How do we ensure our most vulnerable citizens are looked after, even though we, we promote, uh, I mean, capitalism promotes, you know, if you're working hard and you are at the forefront of your industry, you'll be remunerated, you know, excessively for it. We've seen that with, with the Oppenheimers and we've seen that with the, even going further back, the, the, the Carnegie's and the, and the um, you know, all, all, all the giants of industries. So how do we look after the, the little man who is just the worker of these people? And that's the whole thing with democracy was you all have equal opportunity to get to that position of CEO. But we also need to look after those people with social grants, which is slightly socialist in, in its nature. But we do need to realize we cannot for, completely forego socialism for the fact that we cannot completely forego all socialist policies because that's why we have social grants like uif like the um temporary employment relief solution TERS. these were all good natured ideas started by our government started by the department of labor to help those in need at a time like this where we basically giving them money for free saying to them you've been unemployed here is your social grant check yes TERS was only 350 rand which went to people that were affected by this disaster and the problem with that is those people apparently only a handful of them got it and when I'm saying a handful there's reports of maybe about a hundred or so out of a country of hundreds of thousands of people that would have qualified for that so the problem is you can't tell me that you want to have socialism but then when it comes down to the basic principles of implementing socialist ideas in a democracy we're failing at that as well we can't even do that we can't even give social grants to those that need it yeah, so then, how, how then is, will an entire yeah, country that's that's, work? The that's a failure of bureaucracy that's that, well, it's uh, corruption it's corruption but it, corruption is the failure of bureaucracy bureaucracy is supposed to distribute um from the haves to the have-nots that that is its primary function it's supposed to collect taxes and then disperse those taxes in a way that then serves the greater society and provides a safety net for those that don't have. So bureaucracy in itself, if it's run by government and there's no, there's no profit motive, um, it, it becomes very inefficient. And inefficiency leads to corrupt practice. So it, it, it fails. I mean, that, that's why I believe that, you know, you look at how the government has run, for instance, ESCOM, uh, South African Airways, um, state-owned state entities all yes. the state-owned ent entities and now they are saying listen we want to do the same thing with the healthcare system in south africa yeah. so the the bureaucratic failings of the the government is is the, there's almost no exception to how they fail um but i don't think that is an international principle but I let me ask internationally you. there are some countries that very effectively efficiently um, collect taxes and redistribute it so that there is a safety net, so that there is universal health care, so that there is a universal basic income. Well, ca Canada is a great example of that. Canada is a great example of a country that works with free health care, that works with these social grants and everything. But now my question to you then is, is it democracy or bureaucracy, as you say, is it that that turns people to be corrupt politicians? Or is it a geographical scenario where it's volatile countries with their their economies that are volatile that tends to turn itself towards corruption what is it that makes for example country a let's not use actual names country a is a democracy and they are able to implement 
a universal healthcare system where everyone is able to get their healthcare and country b is a country where they also a democracy but they fail to implement all these social look there's, two, there's two parts to answer what, what, what makes it there are two parts the one is that bureaucracies can fail and they can fail if there's no accountability so that can happen but also um, if you are starting to subsidize a greater part of your population where is that money coming from how how are you financing that and are we financing that by borrowing from the next generation and the next generation, which is what we are doing? When we, the world is given in America, for instance, we use America as a prime example because it seems to be such a microcosm of the world's problems at the moment. Um, every free society in the world is experiencing the problems that America is experiencing to some degree. And America is sitting with $23 trillion worth of sovereign debt, only sovereign debt. This, this, this include, Sorry, expl excludes, expl explain that to the uneducated. Sovereign debt is I'm what, not saying I'm one of it's them. It's what but, the know. government, every year, the government um, uh, gets money in and they pay money out. And the difference between that, the, what, what goes out and what comes in, if there's a deficit or a surplus, that deficit gets financed by borrowing. And so the American government has borrowed to the tune of $23 trillion dollars. Now, this is a country so that what makes it sovereign. Sorry, just to it's sovereign. So it's it belongs to the the, ga the government, the nation. So it, the government does that on behalf of its people. Okay. So, for instance, America would issue bonds or, or treasury bonds that then would be paid by the Fed and that would be financed by um, uh, countries like China buying that debt. Yes. So well, that's what I was going to ask you now. So just because I mean, also we want to help people understand. I'm not saying I'm one of the uneducated. I mean, I clearly know everything about what's going on, what you're talking about. But where where does America get where do where do they get this money from? Do they get it from world banks or they 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 borrow from uh, nation they, states? They borrow from other nations. They borrow from private individuals. They borrow from companies like an Amazon, like a Alibaba, yes. like the, any of these companies and individuals, wealthy individuals throughout Europe and Far East and America, would own these American bonds. Yes. So it's almost like a loan agreement, um, but that is to the tune, just for the government debt, is $23 trillion. Now, America as a country produces only about $19 trillion worth of output every year. So that is, for instance, like you, let's say you're earning a million rand a year. Oh, I'd love to, thank you. And your and your credit card is sitting on $1.2 million. Um, that is what's happening. So I'm, ne and that is I'm never going to be able to catch up with my debt. And that is growing. Yes. Um, so the only way you can get out of that, unfortunately, the only way you can get out of that is by inflating your way out of it. So inflation then reduces the value of your debt because the debt stays stagnant um, and inflation then um, uh, almost reduces the, the debt in real terms. But inflation causes its own problems. Hmm. But in essence, what has happened is that America borrows this money and they say, we will pay you back 10 years or 30 years from now. And they're even talking about 100-year bonds they're issuing. Um, and they, they're borrowing this against, or they're almost saying, now, you know, like, like you say now with your credit card, you say if your credit card company say, listen, give me, give me an, another 200,000 rand extension on my credit card, even though I'm so far overdrawn. Um, and they say, well, how are you going to pay me back? And you say, well, I've got some kids and they're going to be working in the future and I will make sure they pay you back. <laughs> that is in essence what's what a happening. lovely person I am. So you're borrowing, <laughs> you're borrowing from the next generation. Yes. Um, and, and that is obviously to their detriment. 
And eventually you get to a point where the interest bill on your debt is so high that you can't even grow yourself so out of that So it's completely short-sighted is what you're saying. Is, is that this, this, this module that they're working in where they are just racking up this debt, it's short-sighted because it's like, get the money because it'll fix things for now. Yeah, but what about tomorrow? Don't worry about tomorrow. That's, exactly That's tomorrow's it. problem. Yes. And are you saying that but, that, but you see is also, that is that a global? That's a global thing. But but very interestingly, I, I've read about how China goes about doing this. Uh, China is very clever, and 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 they're not they're not they're not evil in doing this. They just have the resources to do it. Anybody else with those kind of resources would do exactly. So the does same China thing. have no debt? China would. Yeah, no, they do. They've got lots. But China would go to an African country, and they would say to that African country. We we want to we want to exp we want to import your minerals whatever you digging up or whatever you're growing or whatever farmland we want to invest, but in order for us to do that we want you to build a, a seaport, and the African company government says well, we don't have the money China says it's fine oh, we'll we it. will give you you know, uh, you know two hundred billion dollars and let's build this port, and they say oh we can't repay that they say it's fine it's fine here's the terms. After five, six years, they can't pay anymore. China says, no, it's not a problem. You can stop paying now. We'll take over ownership of it. Yeah. So then so they slowly own... but surely, they start taking over resources, infrastructure well, on the African continent. That's what they, do it, they do it through initially offering cheap finance, yes. which obviously the African government is going to take because it supplies jobs. It gets them elected into the next election. Hmm. Um, but they know they can't pay it. So they are selling off, you know, without calling it that immediately, but they are selling off assets of the nation. So, I mean, that, that was exactly going to be my next question to you. Um, I think we've seen it a lot in South Africa with Chinese involvement in our country, in the economics, in the property markets, in development, um, in various economic industries in our country. Um, again, I'm no economics expert. You want to talk about the law? Fantastic. We can have a chat about that. But from my very limited knowledge and from what I've read and from what I've, I've, I've been spoken to about, you know, the Chinese have invested a lot um, in the Marofontein area uh, here in Johannesburg, where they're talking about starting a whole sort of, I think they called it a China city sort of type of um, vibe, where, like you're saying, the, the Chinese are investing in the infrastructure, investing in these big development projects of housing, of all these kind of things, which, which sound on surface great. I mean, it sounds so philanthropic of this country to come to us and say, you know what, you guys seem like you're struggling. Let us help you and, and build all these great things. But then, like you say, there are all these hidden terms or, or they are... They, not, they won't not, do it for nothing. Or not even hidden, put it that way, not even hidden. It's like there are these terms attached to it, which our politicians are almost saying, well, that's tomorrow's problem. If we can't repair it, that's tomorrow's problem. What do I want as... Let's just, for example, say say the ruling party. What do I want as the ANC? I want to make sure I'm getting in the next election. What's going to look great for me is if we sign a, a big trade deal with China to export our things or get a new uh, port in Durban or get a new residential and structure. That, and that, my friend, there is the failing of democracy. Because so are every, you saying every government poor countries are more, are more I, I, susceptible to corruption? And, and, and what do they call it? They call it... Um, State capture, I mean, is, is basically selling, selling the states to, to but, other but, individuals. But the problem with democracy compared to China, China can have a long-term view. The Chinese Communist Party can say, we want a 40-year development plan for China. So we're going to, we're going to do, take some of the, the, the strong medicine now, and we're going to have some austerity measures in place now, 
but it's fine because 40 years from now we're going to have the infrastructure, we've got time on our side. Every democracy thinks only as far as the next election. Every democracy. Uh, Every, let me let me uh, ask you that because uh, yes, are you saying because yes, because you get elected to a four or five year term, and then you want to be re-elected, so that's your only function. Your 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 you you're not in politics for altruistic reasons. You're there for your own gain. You're there for your own, you know, power kick, whatever it is that you get out of it, and you are like Trump, for instance. Trump's single goal in twenty sixteen when he got elected was to make sure he gets re-elected. That's his single goal. And yes, part of the spin-off of that might be, you know, let's make America great again, let's secure our borders. But those things are things that he thinks will get him re-elected. So it, in, a, in a democracy, you are functioning in, on a four-year or five-year cycle. It's a popularity so, contest. So why not take money from the next generation? Because that's going to be another politician's problem. Well, Let me rather take that money now, promise to pay it off over 30 years, but I get elected, I get re-elected. And every government in, a free, in free societies, and that is the failing of democracy. Democracy is incredibly short-sighted. But in a country like China, they can, they can afford to say, listen, let's take a 10, 20, 40, 80-year vision for our because nation. Because they're communist. And let, not because they're communist, but because they are not accountable to their people. So because they are more autocratic, is that what you're saying? They're autocratic, but they, they, they can't be kicked out. <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they're in power for life. Yes. Whereas every politician in free democratic societies are only in power for as long as that term lasts. Well, that being said, though, um, the ANC did say many years ago that they will be in power until Jesus comes. So <laughs> are we not in a bit of an autocratic democracy over here? Um, so, but th never mind that. That is th that's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question. Um, uh, okay, I see what you're saying. I mean, if you compare that, yes, maybe the arrogance of them believing they can't be held accountable has had different effects in South Africa, whereas in China, they've taken the honourable, the honourable autocratic route, and they have said, let us do what is good for China. But I think also there's a there's a there's a distinction to be drawn. China sits with 1.4 billion people. I mean, you think, I mean, I, I went, I was in Shanghai um, in January last year. And I must say, it was, of all my travels, it was the one city that took my breath away more than any other city. It is unbelievable how you can have 34 million people in a city. And I must say, that city borders other cities that, I mean, if you take that whole metropolitan area of Shanghai all the way through to Wuxi and Shang, Jiangsu, I mean, they, they must be close to 100 million people living in that section, or more. It is massive. You can drive for three, four hours, and you will be driving next to high-rises all the time. 30, 40, 50, 80-story buildings all the time. It is massive. And, you know, in that 34 million people city, nobody's unemployed. There's not a stitch of paper or litter on the ground anywhere. There is close to zero violent crime. Everybody is fed. Nobody lives on the street. And you think, what does it take? What does it take to organize 34 million people on a voluntary or involuntary basis? What does it take to organize 34 million people to make sure that their needs are fulfilled on a daily basis. They can all eat, they can go to school, they can go to work. The public transport system, that it's clean, that it's safe. Let's not talk about the pollution. But they live and function as a 34 million people city. Now, 34 million people, 
I mean, how do you do that? My, my question is, how do you do that? Well, let me because if they did not have the honourable approach, even though they're not Democrats, if they did not have the honourable approach, there would be chaos in Shanghai. Shanghai, if Shanghai had two million unemployed people and a half a million people living on the streets, and I mean, can you imagine civil unrest? How do you control? And the best way the Chinese authorities thought that we can control these people is making sure they get employed, making sure that they organize, making sure that we control them, as they are doing now. Well, that's now you must be you must be aware of that the social media scorecard. Yeah. That yeah. you yeah. So you you get. Well, every, every, you get points or points taken away. Everything depending is he heavily on censored. Everything. But depending on what you say on, on the equivalent of Facebook or Twitter, yeah. if you say something that is critical of the government, even something that is bad news, you lose points. Hmm, and every time you that. say something good about the government, you gain points. And it's almost like a scorecard that then gets looked at when you apply for a government job, hmm. when you have to put your child into a good school. When you have to apply for a, a, a job at a, at a big corporation, mm. they look at your social media scorecard. That is how they control the people. That's why they are so well, scared that's what I of criticizing anything about the system. Sure, and that's exactly what I was going to say to you now. Because um, you say, how do they do it? And this might be a bit of a rhetorical question, but do they not just do it because of the fear? The intense fear that if you do something wrong in China... That's it. It's tickets for you. They, 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 you know, you almost you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If you want to have a society that works that great, are we saying that we then have to just deal with the fact that it's going, going to be autocratic, it's going well, to be communist, it's going to be full of rife with fear, with censorship of media, or do you want completely uncensored media, do you want a completely democratic society, but then you have people that are unemployed? So it's almost like, which of the two evils do you want to pick? Because that doesn't seem to be something for me that is completely harmonious. Tell me one country in the world where they're okay. getting it right. I, I tell you, the turning point for me, and this was a seminal event in my life. Uh, 1989 was my last year in matric, in, in school. And in that year, the Iron Curtain came down, the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, apartheid came down. It was one of those, those years that where it seemed everything changed in every country. In 89 also was the year where those kind of um, feelings and euphoria started sweeping through China. And in Beijing, on Tiananmen Square, the students started gathering. Um, I think they started in April already. Um, it was actually a public holiday they gathered for. But they gathered steam, and eventually there were thousands of them that were camping out on this huge, huge Tiananmen Square in the center of Beijing, um, right next to the, uh, the Communist Party head headquarters. And they were building um, uh, polystyrene statues of the Statue of Liberty, and they were singing songs, and there was this growing sense of excitement, like, you know, this change that is sweeping through the world is going to sweep through communist China as well. We're going to get glasnost, we're going to get perestroika, <laughs> we're going to get the end of apartheid, we're going we're gonna to be part of this. We're going to have this, our own McDonald's to go to. This was <laughs> 89. I followed this. At the time, I remember following it still on CNN. And there was this euphoria about it. Yeah. And the Chinese government, uh, Li Zemin, looked at this, and eventually he ran out of options, and he sent the military in with tanks. Jeez, like. And there are conflicting reports about how many people were murdered. Um, and there's an iconic picture. I mean, you know the guy walking with his grocery bags, and he faces off against the t those tanks. Yeah. And he just wouldn't get out of their way. Um, I mean, and I think that clampdown on Tiananmen Square then, has 
I mean, it did two things. It first of all put the fear of God in the Chinese citizens. Yeah. They would never attempt this again unless they are assured of victory. And also, in the Chinese Communist Party leaders' minds, they realized this is something that if we don't catch it early enough, like early, early enough, on the kitchen table conversation early enough, if we don't catch it there, we can be caught with our pants down and we can be overthrown very quickly. They also realized that if we don't give these people jobs and make sure they're all employed and start growing this economy, we're going to have this risk um, recurring. Tiananmen Square 1989, I think, was the last chance for China to change peacefully. Or the I, civil revolution I, I don't think they will go down peacefully. Um, I travel quite a bit in China, and I must say, you don't talk to them. They are, they are very cagey, even in a restaurant. So you, they, you wouldn't have would, this podcast over there talking about politics. I wouldn't politics. talk with this. Wouldn't, <laughs> but but they, they, wouldn't, they would never talk politics. They, never. They have... They have the party line, and they just they, they just they toe the line. I think they they are. I mean, they they talk about how many millions of people are employed um, by the Communist Party as as paid spies. They just go around listening in on conversations and um, trying to set honey traps for people and try and set little uh, traps for them to say things critical of the government or of the authorities. Um, they are very scared. So I think. The chances of, of China causing another peaceful revolution is zero. But, and this is a big but, Hong Kong is their last resort. Hong Kong is the last place that Standing can still, against the Chinese that can still stand against the Chinese system, even though they are in the, in the system, but they, under a different uh, system. Wouldn't you say that they are massively outnumbered and outgunned? I mean, that again would be, for me, a situation where the West would almost have to get involved and say, look, we are protecting the interests of Hong Kong. Someone like the United States or the U UK or whatever it may be, or Russia, someone getting involved and saying, you know, you cannot do this to another state. I know that they have assumed control of Hong Kong now, but I mean, what, where, where, what I'm saying is, how does, how does, where does the line stop? Where do we stop and say... That's that you've gone far enough, China. Who who polices China? Who poli I don't know. You're laughing now, but is is it you've is gone it, far enough, China? Is, is is it a is it a fool is it a fool's quest to say that you need to stop this? Because by the, by the sounds of it, you're painting a very beautiful picture with um, employment and uh, infrastructure and economies at work. But you're living in a in a system where there's censorship of the media. But you see, this is hardly this is freedom of speech. So do you do you, do you use a balancing act? To but, try say, well, let's have this, but then not that. Or, I mean, look, we, we're living in a democracy where we have a lot more rights, than, let's say, than Chinese citizens. But we're living in a democracy where 30% of our economy is, or 30% of our workforce is unemployed. There's, there's a question you get asked every American election. It is the seminal question that, like, this is what determines whether you, who you vote for. Are you better off now than you were four years ago? If yes, then vote for the incumbent. Now, China took that model and said, if we can just tell people that you're better off now than you were last year or 10 years ago, they will carry on supporting us. But that's they don't why, need their support. That's why, that's why after, after Tiananmen Square, during the 90s, China was growing at 17, 18, 19% a year. Massive, massive growth. It has come down and it was like averaging. It, it plateaued a little bit at about 6, 7%. 
2020, take it from me, is going to possibly dump China in a recession later this year. So it'll be the first time where answering that question, the population of China will say, no, I'm not better off now than I was four years ago. I've lost my job. We're not growing. The prospects are dwindling. Um, my income is lower. Inflation is going up. And my debt is high. Even like this, this will be the first time. And if you get a disgruntled population, so you don't have to have a happy population. As long as you can show them and ask them, are you better off now than you were five years ago? If yes, then it means we're doing the right thing. So carry on supporting us. As soon as something happens, like 2020, where suddenly the, your economy has tripped up, then suddenly how do you control 1.4 billion people um, that, you know, if you take 10%, let's say 10% of them lose their jobs. You know, that's not far-fetched. 10% is 140 million people that's suddenly in the street. How many of them are going to blame the government? How many of them are going to go hungry? Oh, yeah. How many of them are going to resort to crime? How many of them are then going to say, we are now those who don't have a stake in the system, so now we want to destroy it? Civil revolution. And that's when it happens. That's when it happens. And they are not polarized because everybody in China at the moment believes that if they pull together and they hold together as a cohesive unit, that they all have a stake in the system. Mm. Even though it's corrupt, even though it's autocratic, even though they're being spied on, they have a stake in the system because they're employed and they're getting more money and they're getting mm. wealthier and they... They're growing themselves out of poverty. But as soon as you have a 10% of the people, 20% could happen. I mean, what happens then if you have such a significant by millions of people? 200 million people. That suddenly say, we don't have a stake in the society. You know, that's like Black Lives Matter on steroids. Mm. Well, 200 million people, that is, that's bigger than most countries around the world. I mean, that's... That so is, so, that is so China, China is struggling, and I think... I think what's also what's also on their minds is that China is feeling a hell of a lot of tension from especially America, but from all over. There's tension between Australia and, and China at the moment for many, many reasons. Um, and there's tension. There's been border skirmishes. I don't know if you're aware of this, between India and yes, China. Yes, yes. Um, on the Tibetan border. Um, Tibet is another issue, although they're not militant. Um, Taiwan um, have uh, a new uh, president that is very independent-minded. Um, in the Spratly Islands, I don't know if we've covered this before, but no. um, the Spratly Islands is, is uh, uh, islands that China have occupied and built a military base on, and that's an island that the Philippines lay claim to. So these, these border tensions um, all around China. So I think they're feeling the strain, and I think the economy is going to be what determines whether China crashes or not. Mm and whether that autocratic system holds or not. Personally, I think with um, 200 million people on the street suddenly, you're not going to be able to hold it. I think it's going to become ungovernable. So speaking about how these nations work, whether it be through democracy or through autocratic rule, let's take it a complete different direction. What if we were to start our own country? Because this is sort of relevant now it's new news that's come to light in a couple of days prior to this where if you had asked me about three or four days ago how many countries there are in the world i would have told you that i actually have no idea <laughs> because i don't actually keep track of how many countries there it's are in the world. but 
there are 195. I did Google that. I did check it. And uh, Carl seemed to claim to know the answer off the top of his I'm head. I'm convinced it's 195. But you, you, you seem to, to be convinced that you knew that without Googling it or ha having prior knowledge. But I'll give that to you. I didn't know it. So I, was I just, could be wrong. Am I wrong? No. So let me say that you, you might actually just be wrong on that. So like I said, three days ago, you might have been in the right by saying 195. I might have been right in saying 195, even though I didn't know. But actually, if you look at it now, there are 196 countries in the world. So we have to, actually on this podcast, it's, it's something quite beautiful. It's, it's an it's, it's a honor for us to do this. We are welcoming the new nation state of Chaz to the world's playing sphere of politics, economics, of everything. We have a new country in the world. It's called Chaz. They are the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And um, they formed a country, much like the Vatican City in Italy, they formed their own independent country within the borders of Seattle in the United States. So um, this is big. This is massive. Um, I think while we're all fighting over world politics and what is right socially, some people have thought, you know what, the best thing to do <laughs> is to govern ourselves and start a new, a new state. So Chaz is this new state. It's started by people in Seattle that were fed up with the police brutality. And um, they and, and and what's the first thing that they did? Well, you see, the first thing that they did, very interestingly enough, is they created borders for their little autonomous country. They've got. How did they enforce those borders? So what they did was they took wooden. Don't tell me they built a wall. They took wooden pallets. They took sort of uh, construction equipment. They took everything on a rudimentary basis for now, but they built a walled encampment, a walled wall a walled wall <laughs> um i ran out of uh adjectives to use over there <laughs> so they've built a wall tell me are they armed they've built a wall they've got armed checkpoints so in other words if you go in and you try and become an illegal alien to the republic or we're we actually not sure what their their system is yet they're still very new they are still they're a they're a burgeoning country you must understand that they are still new they they still require social aid and i'll get to that now but they have, they have armed checkpoints where you can't go in without being checked by their own, their own citizens. They don't have uh, United States police or... I mean, this is very much like the Vatican City. They have Chez military, Chez police. Uh, Chaz, sorry, Chaz. Chaz, sorry, lest I say it wrong and we forever get banned from visiting the Republic of Chaz. But they literally have social systems where the United States are supporting them. The Seattle government itself, uh, the local municipality and government there, is going in and providing them with porta potties. They are sending in people to clean these porta potties for them. So, I mean, it's very noble that we support these new nations and, and give them the aid where they can because you must understand these are people that are feeling oppressed and they've started their own country, but they don't want to clean up porta potties, understandably. I mean, that is. When starting your own country, you just want all the good things, to be fair. You don't really want all the, sorry to say it, the shit, um, literally. The, the frightening part of this, if we have to get past the absurdity of it, the frightening part is that I have heard that Minneapolis has a similar burgeoning society. A new country? That is trying to occupy a certain section of the city. Hmm. And... Under other Democrat-run cities, in other Democrat-run states, there's talk of more of these places like springing up. Um, 
and I just, I just, I, like, what is the end game with this? How, how does, in, in world warfare parlance, how does America re-annex that six city blocks? If they are sitting there with, and they have to re-annex it with either the military or with the police against armed militias, I mean, how does well, this how does this end? You see, you must be very careful. You, we, we cannot call them violent protesters because um, violence is a very politically incorrect term. So we actually have to call them peacefully challenged. They are peacefully challenged. So it is it's going to become a very big issue of how are these people going to? So the problem now becomes how do we provide aid? to these new nations how do we support them with uh geopolitical stances i mean the mayor of seattle she refuses to go into the new Chaz zone because of it being peacefully challenged and um yet the city and, and the the mayor of seattle supports them supports this new uprising this new community wholeheartedly saying that these people have a right to be self-autonomous and yet it seems that they are challenging the peaceful nature of the suburbs around them who are now also going to become peacefully challenged. So it does become a bit strange where we are now facing, like you said, six blocks of a city which have now been annexed. Um, and like you say, where do we draw the line? Does that mean for me, I mean, I stay in Benoni, which is, uh, so do you, it's very unfortunate for us. It's one of the things we have to deal with in our life. Does that mean I can go take a section of ground at the Homestead Dam or a section of houses in my suburb? I mean, I would very much like that. I would like to become a king. Um, I think King Adrian sounds pretty good and I would be a reasonable king. Uh, this new Chaz, I must say, I got it wrong. They're not a republic and they are not a autocratic ru rulership or anything like that. They are, in fact, uh, a monarchy because they have... Uh, the person is called King Raz Simon. And um, this distinguished politician is actually a rapper, former rapper, who has now become a civil rights activist, who now leads many of these armed, militant, peacefully challenged uh, individuals. And they've taken over a police station. And it's all good and well to say that let's support it because that's what we need, a social revolution. But how good does it become when that social revolution starts in interrupting and infecting your neighborhoods that's what i'd like to find out when people are inf infected on the outside of the borders of Chaz. when will Chaz start a international conflict with the united states when the united states tries to take back those six city blocks that's what i fear because it'll be done think about it like this it'll be have to be it'll be done by either police or military force and what is the initial protest all about? Milit oh, well, police violence. Uh, po police violence. Uh, well, uh, and this is police brutality. By, I would assume mostly a Black Lives Matter movement. Um, yes. You know, you just when what what kind of sensitivities are involved in how they get this back? I mean, the people from of Chairs must be backing themselves and saying, "There's no way that they're going to touch us." Yeah. Because then the, the mayor is too scared. Well, she supports them, in fact. Um, she supports them, but I mean, she has to, because I think they, they, 
I mean, that's the electorate. She was. She would have a <coughs> a, a coup d'état on her but, hands. I mean, how do you take back those six city blocks? I think we joke about this, but I keep on thinking about the end game. How does this end? How do those six city blocks? I mean, if the mayor doesn't take it back, if the governor doesn't take it back, and Trump says this, and I've had enough. This is part of our country. You've annexed my country. I'm going to send in some tanks a la Tiananmen Square. <laughs> I mean, how else do you do this? And you do this, the way in which you do it is what caused the initial outburst, outrage, Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter demonstrations. So there is no, there's no sensible, sensitive way of doing this that doesn't end badly. It is, it's like... At, I almost I get the sense I don't know if you remember Waco, Texas. Yes, Waco with I the mean, this is like, the Branch Davidians. I think is this going to be one of those where there's going to be a standoff and there's mm. going to be a siege? They're going to like like surround them and cut off all supplies and starve them to death mm. until they can like smoke them out somehow. I mean, yeah, well that's what I mean, they did in Waco. Yeah. I mean, what what would they what would it take? You see, and what happens if if there's another 10 or 20 of these little towns or countries that yeah. spring up all over the states? You see, for me, the, the dangerous and maybe the foreshadowing I have now of the danger of this is that if it becomes a Waco situation, first of all, for those that don't know the entire story of Waco, it didn't end great for either party. Um, the Waco, Waco was a, a cult of religious yeah. followers of um, David Koresh. He was a person that started the branch davidians and they had very very um wayward or very strange but the beliefs. difference the difference with waco is that they didn't have public support but the thing is waco let, well let me get to that i disagree with you on that carl um waco when the armed conflict started because these were armed citizens when the conflict started between the government and waco at the time a few members of the armed police and the armed military that went into Waco were killed by the Branch Davidians. Uh, Waco themselves, sorry to ruin it for anyone that hasn't watched the documentaries, I don't want to give spoilers, but the whole of the complex, the compound burns down and everyone in, in Waco's compound of the Branch Davidians all burned to death. Women, children, everyone. Now, there was a person that was very vehemently anti-government that watched this all unfolding, that were part of the protests supporting Waco. Um, I cannot get his actual name. It can't come to my head right now. I mean, I could Google it, but I'll just say that he was the Oklahoma City bomber. Mm. He was there watching Timothy this. Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh. Thank you. He was there watching this all unfold in Waco. From Waco, the Oklahoma City bombings was and directly 160 people killed. related to that. Where Timothy McVeigh rented a U-Haul van, parked outside of a massive government uh, building like a you know, government offices which were related to, you know, serving the people. There were child daycare centers over there in that building where they, the people going to work at their offices who are government employees would send their children to this little daycare in the building where there were about 30, 40 children in that daycare. The bomb went off. Hundreds of people lost their lives. I think 160. These, these, were, these were American citizens killed by a, an act of domestic terrorism directly as a result from Waco and then the Ruby Ridge shooting as well was another one. But what I'm saying is we have to be so careful with these little m militarized conflicts, which are not conflicts at the moment, but they could become conflicts, which could cause conflicts but elsewhere, which become very... Where I say that they are not, they don't have any popular support, 
Waco or the Branch Davidians didn't have popular support. I would, uh, I would not be surprised if this Chaz becomes the hot-button issue of the November election. And that Chaz is still in existence, mm. um, probably expanding, probably well, becoming blocks. more armed. 18 blocks. blocks. More arms in there. But I wouldn't be surprised if how to deal with Chaz becomes a key issue of this election. Mm. And you will have the Democrats would then, I think, be too scared to act too harshly because they, they want to be seen as being on the side of the Black Lives Matter and against police brutality and against the f and and for, and for defunding the police and so they would be very scared to take action um, so you would have that chaz as being the new this could be the new thing you know this could be the thing that actually evolves into an election issue mm. um, come how November. do we deal with this new state within our borders and and just uh, constitutionally speaking, what powers would Trump have mm. um, in acting against them? And does he have, I mean, do we then see conflict between the state, the governor, the mayor, mm. and the federal government? How do they actually, what is the end game? I don't see these guys peacefully handing over these six city blocks. They're going to hold on to it as though it is some kind of sentimental, some kind of symbolic resistance against the machine. So, I mean, I, I, I shudder when I think of how this is going to end. Maybe I'm making too much of this, and maybe it is just a little sideshow that will pass. Um, but there's a part of me that thinks that the way that the world is turning and the way that America's social warfare are carrying on, this is not going to end well. Well, I think if we, again, um, there's, a, there's a quote that says, those that do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And uh, if we look at the, the policy, I'm specifically talking about the policy of appeasement that the UK followed, the English followed in World War II, where I'm not, please understand me, I'm not comparing Chaz to uh, socialist Germany, to the national socialists, but where we find unrest in a scenario where generally a lot more people are at peace, like the German war machine, where they just strolled into town into Poland into Austria and just took what they want they annexed Austria um, we all saw how appeasement how that failed to deal with that scenario in World War II and eventually that led to Winston Churchill being elected and saying enough is enough and putting his foot down and saying I'm going to stop these Nazi bastards and that was the start of World War II of of the end of appeasement was the start of a world war conflict, which ultimately cost a lot of lives, which was horrific. But we stopped in its tracks one of the most evil social political movements that we have ever seen in the world with concentration camps, with the atrocities committed by the states at the time of Germany through its National Socialist Party. So that is the worry that I have, is that if we carry on with this appeasement, that all we are going to do is tell people that it is okay to be militant. It is okay to be peacefully challenged. Violent, if you want to be non-politically correct. Are you, are, you ever, are you ever justified in raging against the machine, as the Chazians are doing? Well, you do know that's, I mean, a, you do we, know that's a band, right? I know that you're... 
yeah. you're generationally challenged. But do you know the band is named after the actual thing? Yes, the Rage Against you the Machine. You rage against the machine. Yeah. The machine is the system. Yeah, the system. Yeah, screw so the I mean, man. Can you, can, Stand up against the man. Can you ever justify... Standing up against the man. ...in a democracy? Well, I think where, where, where it worked again, I wouldn't say it worked out great because there, a lot of lives were lost, but how, you know... We had the Soweto uprising, the Sharpeville uprising. Yeah, and look at domestic. We had not, not, not a democracy. That's what I'm saying. In a democracy. Are you ever justified in taking up arms against the government in a democracy? Extinct question. You, are you ever justified in raging against the machine? Well, I guess we'll put that to the listeners, Carl. In a democracy. We'll put that to the listeners, and I think that's the question that we'll end it on then. We'll say to them, when is it the right time to take up arms against a democratically elected government? If ever. Yeah. So I think we did pretty well in that thing, Carl. So I think we'll leave that to the listeners. Tell us what you think. If you think that the answer to more rights, the answer to a more peaceful existence is war. And also, I'm curious to know, what do you think comes next? You know, we're halfway, we're almost halfway through 2020. And what a year, what a year it's been. How much has happened? Um, how much has happened? And we are almost halfway. How would the last six months of 2020 turn out? What can we still expect? How do you see what has happened in the first six months evolving into other things for the remainder of this year? What can we still expect? I mean, how, how much worse can it get? Or is there a, a light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah. All right. Well, that's a wrap for episode two then, Carl. Thanks for partaking in the discussion. Cheers. See you next time. Cheers.